All right, kids, here we go. Starting strength seminars next up June 3rd through the 5th, and after that, August 12th through the 14th. For training camps, we do have our Lift Shoot Fight Camp. That's a two-day camp on April 30th to May 1st with two spots left at the time of this recording. Then we have squat and deadlift camps available May 14th in Boise at Starting Strength Boise in Idaho. We've added some spots to Boston on May 21st for that camp at Starting Strength Boston. And then June 11th in San Antonio at Starting Strength San Antonio. For three lift camps with spots left, we still have our squat, bench, and deadlift camp in Orange County, California on April 30th. That's at the Strength Co., then our squat, press, deadlift, and power clean camp in Seoul, South Korea on May 1st. As far as Starting Strength Gym's news goes, we have Columbus, Ohio getting set to open. So check out columbus.startingstrengthgyms.com to find out what kind of offer you can get and lock in your spot now. And Tulsa, Oklahoma is looking to hire coaches. So if you're in the area or willing to move to the area, then you can go to startingstrengthgyms.com, check out the coaching tab. Fill out the form, get on the list, talk to Anna, and figure out a way how you can make this a new career. And as usual, for more information on anything that I've talked about, head over to startingstrength.com and check out the right-hand side of the homepage. From the Asgard Company Studios in beautiful Wichita Falls, Texas, from the finest mind in the modern fitness industry, the one true voice in the strength and conditioning profession, the most important podcast on the internet. Ladies and gentlemen, starting Strength Radio. Welcome back to Starting Strength Radio. It is uh, uh, always a nice pleasure to have John Musser here with us. And today we're going to talk about the movies again, because that's what we talk about is movies. Well, we talk about other stuff, too. But on the program, we talk about movies with John. And uh, we explained a little bit last time why we recruit John to talk about movies with us. He's had a lot of experience on movie sets and, uh, and he's a sharp guy and, uh, appreciates the art form and has the ins and outs in mind and, and adds a lot to our discussion. So John, thanks for being with us again. It's always a pleasure. So today we're going to do, uh, great films. We have normally, uh, stuck with one genre in our discussions of movies in the past but today we're gonna we're gonna talk about the movies that transcend uh genre pictures by and large and uh and we are going to uh talk about the types of movies that just stick out in your mind as when you get through watching it is that was just a perfect movie it was just a great film some of them are strong genre pieces but all of them transcend uh, just being a good horror movie, for example. Uh, for example, uh, one of the movies we've talked about previously uh, in our genre discussion was Alien. All right, Alien is the 1978 Ridley Scott movie. And the damn thing is just one of the best movies that's ever been made. It was, it's just a perfect film, you know. It was, uh, it was very important to the science fiction genre because of the, the setting. It's a, basically a space opera. But there was technology involved in it, and uh, it, 
and it was um, it, it was it, it was interesting. And I when I back when I saw this, John, see if you agree with my assessment of this. Back when I saw it the first time, I thought, you know, this thing, the the, the sets and the and the special effects and everything on this are just amazing. But that's not what the movie's about. The movie was about the plot. And they did, Scott just does a good job with everything he does. And he made a movie about, he set that movie in outer space and then he ignored the fact that it was in outer space and concentrated on the plot of the film. And that's, I realized that the first time I saw it. It was just so that, yeah, the plot is what drives it. The the sets and everything add to the plot, of course. It yes. gives you that claustrophobic feeling. It gives you that that feeling of no escape, almost like a closed room situation. And then uh, all the characters behave as they behave. None of the characters change. Uh, they don't change the way through. They behave as they should behave, and it was character-driven. Right. It's um, like the, the Yafet Kodo character and Harry Dean Stanton are down there in, in a in the in a spaceship talking about they're being fucked around with their salary. <laughs> you know. Yeah, Not it making made, enough money. It made it like a, you know, that's <laughs> that kind of thing. You know, that was it was like a working class guys in space. Yeah. You know, so, sort of a working class guy in space yeah. is seemed is what it seemed to be. And then and then if bad guys were the human of course, they were the bad guys. The 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 alien itself was simply a force of nature. You right. know what I mean? It wasn't like it was just doing. What Not it, really it a just, character as as such. No, it's just doing what it does. Yes, it's, like it's a just force evil. That's all it is. It's just. Yeah. yeah. But uh, well, even even beyond evil, it's just doing it's just doing what it does. Uh, right. It does, it's not evil, it's not good, it's not anything. It's just a right. It's it just does. like the waves crashing on the shore. It's just a, that's just a, yep. just a, it's just what's going to happen. And there's nothing you can do about it. You can't change that. You can't change the alien. So what are you going to do? What are you going to do? And it, yeah, it was a, a, it's just a brilliant piece of writing. But it, it that thing was the first. I guess that was probably the first Ridley Scott film I'd ever seen, because now he'd already done The Duelist and uh, a couple other things prior to that, but I was not aware of them at all, and uh, I kind of played catch up. After it's it's, it's Ridley Scott is known for such imagery, you know. So when yes. you take that imagery, put it on top of a of a really well done script. It's it uh, makes a very impactful movie, which is why it, everybody talks about it. How many ever years later, thirty five years later, whatever it is. Right. So, uh, and and the uh, I, it was a powerful movie. So many things, so many of the standard things we see in science fiction now come from that movie. Uh, it still has impact. It's still uh, it's still relevant. You can still watch it today and enjoy it. It makes it an important flick. Right. I was, uh, I think, 78 when that movie came out. And it was a, uh, it was a, it was really set the stage for everything Ridley Scott did after that. And people want to discount the value of the thing because it is a genre movie. But, you know, it, it 
it it like we said earlier it transcends a genre film just because of the total quality of the whole thing you know yeah uh, 44 years is that right did i do the math right said 44 I think years so ago? yeah i believe so that's a hell of a long time ago and the thing you watch it on dvd right now you can't tell when it was made no you can't i like tell when i like revisiting old movies on high def I like seeing I like seeing them in high def. I like seeing what they're capable of, you know. Right. And uh, so another another genre movie that has made our second what we're going to call our secondary list here is uh, Seven Samurai. Now we've talked about Seven Samurai when we talked about the sword movies. But right. Seven Samurai, and we discussed this at the time, Seven Samurai is a very important film just in the, in the, in the grand scheme of things in, in terms of cinematographic history. Is that a word? Cinematographic? Cin cinematic? Cinematic. History? Yeah, that's better. <laughs> cinematic I'm not history. Uh, yeah. Um, Seven Samurai is a... Akira Kurosawa film, and I think that was 1958. 54. 54. Long time ago. 1954. Photography was amazing. Taught you about moving shots. You know, they directors experimented with moving shots, but this is Kurosawa. The amount of character. The amount of characters you were introduced to that you had to had to follow carefully. It's not a lazy person watch. You have to you have to actively watch that movie and you have to pay attention closely. Well, and, and the fact the that it's subtitled also it requires more of the audience. Well, yeah, it requires more. The uh, the amount of characters that you're introduced to and how the majority of the characters can be viewed individually. They're not just uh, genre tossed in characters. And I always, always appreciate that when I'm watching a movie. So well, it's an important flick. I think, yeah, it, it's, uh, again, it takes quite a bit uh, to watch it. It demands something. It's three hours and 28 minutes long. You know, yes. the damn thing is just, uh, it's, a, it's, a, it's a whole evening's worth of effort to watch that. But when you get through, you're, you're not disappointed in having spent the time. So it's important to remember that our movie, The Magnificent Seven, the 1960 Western directed by John Sturgis, was a direct English translation of that film. And in fact, the opening credits state that. Magnificent Seven. Right. They're not they're not concealing it. It's not no. um, this it's it's yeah, they're they're just <coughs> letting you know right up front what this movie's based on, what yes. what this came from. He, he the tells the audience this is the this is our version of the great Akira Kurosawa's version of uh, that story, and uh, we've just translated it into a Western. And they retained a lot, not all of it, but a lot of the flavor that you, that you take away from uh, Magnificent Seven, and, or Seven Samurai. I've, I've tried to identify the characters in Magnificent Seven and do a cross connect between the ones and the, um, the seven samurai, and it's not a one to one study. No, it's but not. But they, 
they make it very you can watch carefully and you can see it and and the the magnificent seven of course spawned a whole bunch of other flicks similar to it so uh seven samurai was important for a lot of the reasons uh, not the least of which is it uh it fired off all the ones that came after yeah all of the you know assemble a team of heroes kind of thing <coughs> all so. of those movies are are directly descendant from seven samurai the reluctant hero, the, the reluctant hero, the 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 bad guy that you need to to come in and and it's his only option is to go fight for you. All of those those tropes uh, that all comes from Seven Samurai. I don't know if it existed before. If it did, I didn't see it. I don't I don't remember anything prior to that that was um at least that was not that was treated with such. Uh, uh, seriousness and uh, right. you know so is, is for a history lesson in cinema you need to see Seven Samurai it's a terribly important film and we talked about this in the sword movie uh, uh, podcast but uh, you know we, we would be remiss if we didn't revisit that uh, here in this podcast about great films it's a it is a great film. It's one of the top five films of all time. I would imagine in, in any serious list, it'd be in the top five. Wouldn't you agree with that? It, yes. I, I think any serious list puts it in the top five, but I also think that for a modern viewer, you have to warn them ahead of time what they're getting into. Yeah. It requires, it's it's kind of a, it's an investment. You know, yeah. you're investing your time in it. But if you like movies, if you're a fan of film, well, if you like movies and are a fan of film, you've already seen it, right? Yeah. So those of you so that are why, just getting serious about it, you probably want to remember it's a long thing. It's subtitled. You have to sit there and watch and participate and read and understand what's going on. And, if you, if, you know, the interesting thing about it is if you do that, and you're paying close attention to what's going on, you actually see the performances in the film, the performances of the actors, with about twice or three times as much clarity as you would if you were just casually watching the damn thing. You know? Sure. And they work very hard for those performances. I think a good model to consider for somebody that, that's just getting in new to this and they don't think they've got the patience for the Seven Samurai or any of these other movies that we're going to talk about. They don't have the patience for it. Watch the movie and try to connect it to movies that you've seen recently. Try to connect the way the character behaves or the lighting shot or the angle or the storyline. And then sometimes if you can see the original the original piece, connect it to something you're familiar with, it might give you, it provides somebody a better understanding of the movie. Instead of just looking at it and seeing seven guys peering out of a window for three and a half minutes with a string of subtitles underneath of it, right? So it, it may uh, it may view it in that in that manner. Look at the movie and say, "All right, where have I seen this recently, and who stole this from that movie? What what movies did this movie inspire?" Right, and uh, here's an example of a of a film that could be considered derivative at some level from seven samurai and that's winter soldier now 
Winter Soldier is a superhero movie, so it's a genre film, right? But I have watched that thing. It's a they they've labeled it as a Captain America movie. I've watched that thing. Oh, I've seen it seven or eight times, and it's a perfect film. It 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 it's the it's the collection of heroes from Seven Samurai. Uh, and none of these people have superpowers. This is not a DC thing, you know. This is a Marvel Studios thing. It is uh, uh, such a carefully written, carefully scripted, carefully photographed film. The, the Winter Soldier, the you know Bucky Barnes dying in comics was considered to be something that you just couldn't walk back. Uh, it, you just couldn't walk back his death in comics. And then I guess Brubaker was the writer that said, we're going to bring back, we're going to bring back Bucky Barnes name and the Winter Soldier. So to see that played out on the movie screen and to see that character done correctly and to see all those guys coming together and all the characters that you liked, all the characters that you grew up with, it, uh, it was an impressive piece of work. Uh, Winter Soldier for me, the, the best scene in Winter Soldier is when uh, they tell them to launch launch the helicarriers and Captain America says don't and he's the only one saying don't and then the guy says I can't do it Captain's orders right that tells you who Captain America is right so when I see that that's one of my favorite scenes ever and then the flip side of that is is when they piss all over the Marvel Universe as they have done and they made they turned Hulk into a professor and they made Thor a big fat guy. I can't watch that movie Winter Soldier now because I know the direction that that whole universe is heading. I know that's unfair, but I just it just annoys me so much that I can't participate yeah. in it. I, I've what watched, I mean? what was the film right after that? Was that the one they called The Avengers? Uh, the one with Ultron? Was that the one with yeah, Ultron? Yeah, Age of Ultron. I think that I was... And it's it's not a third of the movie that Winter Soldier was, and so it's, I just quit paying attention after that because I didn't want it to soil me. You know, Winter Soldier's so good. It's just smart move. It's, smart. It's, yep. It's an absolute yep. masterpiece, and which is you know I I know that the serious people are rolling their eyes. You're calling a superhero movie a masterpiece? Well, yeah, I am. Because that's what it is. Yeah, yeah. Well, you don't, I mean, which of those characters do you know that, which of those actors do you know for anything spectacular? There's a lot of well-known actors, but the guy that plays Captain America, until he played Captain America, you, you maybe would have had trouble picking him out of a crowd. You know right. I mean, that's, that's the sort of thing. So that, that tells you that this, the, the script and the performances of everybody is what created that character, you know. Oh, so yeah. uh, it's, it's well done. It's got some powerful moments in it. Uh, if you can watch it and ignore the direction they took that whole collected universe, then then you're 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 doing pretty well. I can't revisit those movies anymore uh, because of the direction they took everything, and it annoys me so much. So I, I'm like, well, I'm not going to spend time being annoyed, being no, pissed off no, about not, you know, a fictional character role. You know? Yeah, it's good enough that they, if the whole thing stopped at Winter Soldier, that's fine with me. Because I'm not going to watch. I'm not going to be lectured to about Wakanga and shit on these. You know, I'm just not. I'm just not interested in in uh, 
in uh, yeah. Hollywood morality at this point. But Winter Soldier didn't have any of that. And what, what that was the last which for, when 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 Hulk was scared and Hulk doesn't get scared, Hulk just gets angry and angry he gets, the stronger he gets. That's right. the rule for Hulk. Right. When Hulk got scared of Thanos, I was like, all right, I'm done. Wash my hands of this whole thing. Right. But um, Yeah, they had to make him more human, right? Had to make the Incredible yeah. Hulk more human. Uh, you guys, you're dropping the ball here. You know, And that's fine. I hope they all get rich. I want everybody to make I do too, fortune. but they don't get to be on our list. <laughs> Yeah, they don't, they don't, they don't, we don't, I don't participate in their fortune. Nope. <laughs> nope. Along kind of the same lines, hero oriented movies. One of my favorite movies um, of all time is uh, a John Milius film from back in the 70s called The Wind and the Lion. Now, mm-hmm. and, and I, I have watched this dozens of times it is a sean connery candace bergen film and uh, it was uh, it was it was a kind of a quasi-historical movie there was an incident in uh, in morocco back about the turn of the century of uh, the kidnap of a, an american citizen by one of the barbary pirates and uh, you know the historical events surrounded that action surrounding that actual event were spun into a, a script and John Milius directed this thing and uh, it is just one of my favorite movies there are so many good lines in it and it's this is back the stunts were rough the firearms were accurate they all had M98s Mauser 98 bolt action rifles I own one and it's hundreds of them there. They made millions of those rifles, you know. They were manufactured the, all the, over the world. And that was exactly what those guys would have had, you know. If you're a gun guy and you're watching that movie and you're seeing the best representation of Teddy Roosevelt that's ever been on film. Absolutely. That's the best best taste of him that's ever on film. It doesn't and get any better than Brian Keith playing Teddy Roosevelt. No, it does not. Brian Keith. Every gun he picks up to check to see if it's empty, every shot that he makes, everything that he does is done well. Yes. He, he, he checks every gun he picks up. He obviously knows how to fool with it. He knows what to do. Just exactly uh, like Teddy would have done, you know. Yes. And he, uh, one of the kids asked him why he's squinting one of his eyes because they were taught to shoot eyes open. And he said, I can't see out of this eye anymore because it's got a hurricane, right? So... All of that stuff uh, with Teddy Roosevelt. When I first started watching the movie, I revisited it the other day when we were talking about it. When I first started watching it, the whole Stockholm syndrome thing of the, the person that's kidnapped starts being sympathetic to the kidnapper. That started getting on my nerves a little bit, the idea that. But then uh, it, it won me over. From the first scene on where the, the actor that played the friend of the lady when she was being kidnapped, right? Right. So... So he's there at the table, and and then Sean Connery and all his guys come crashing in, and he gets up with that Webley Bulldog, and he absolutely puts five people down with that five-shot revolver, and the only reason he didn't put any more down is he ran out of ammo. And they when they put that degree of care into what could have been a throwaway, useless character, 
it shows you that the guy's got a uh, an appreciation for the characters in this film. Yes. So it's it's worth watching. It's 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 absolutely worth watching. Um, a few things you gotta roll your eyes at, but uh, it, it's well done. Uh, I, I don't know that a lot of people even know who the hell uh, Brian Keith is, and I didn't know he was capable of that kind of range until I rewatched that movie. Yeah, the the thing was, uh, I liked the scene in Yellowstone National Park where he he shot the bear, shot the big grizzly yep. bear, which is in right now in the Smithsonian. Yeah, that that bear remains to this day in the Smithsonian, and uh, it's uh, the story around that, and <laughs> he should be our national symbol, <laughs> not that ridiculous eagle. The dandy fire yeah. vulture. <laughs> yeah. So when he when he describes when Alter describes the the ferocity and the courage and a little bit of recklessness, it it was, uh, it was telling of the times, right? I'll tell you another character that won me over was the the Marine captain, uh, Captain Jerome. Right? Yes. Do you remember him? Yes. He only had yeah. uh, he only had a half dozen lines, but he he made the most of all of that. Right. He really did. And then he's, and then I read that he's based on a real character, a real guy that was called Handsome Jack, which is pretty damn cool, right? Yeah. So uh, it's, well, it's a good that, movie. And You'll, the character Goomeray, the the uh, uh, the diplomat that was assigned to Morocco, he he was a that was a actual historical figure. Was he the one standing at the when they were when they were raiding the palace? He had the he had the the Smith and Wesson revolver hidden behind his back yes. just in case things did well. Yes. Yeah. That yeah. Was it. <laughs> yeah. Just in case behind his shit, back. Yeah, just in something. case <laughs> this doesn't go like it should. Uh, uh, there, there was a one, there was a superb scene where uh, Sean Connery has made his escape or they've escaped him and uh, the guy's got a saber in one hand, bad guy, because you got to defy these people, good guys, bad guys. Bad guy's got a saber in one hand and a broom handle mauser in the other. Yeah, that's the German. The, the German yeah, officer. The German. Right. Oh yeah, that was a, that was amazing. And uh you know, they're uh they're looking at each other and the guy's got the pistol and he puts it down and he puts both hands yeah. on his sword and Sean Connery smiles at him and charges him horseback with his Rasuli yeah. sword and and uh gets off knocks him down he gets off and he stands over in him and he just cuts him on the face yeah just cuts him just, just leaves cuts him, a him mark. on the face like his uh to match his other heidelberg scar yes to to to, and, to right and then he gets up and laughs and gets back on his horse and rides it's just yeah. oh i could watch that so, thing over and over it's so good i mean it, just a guy with a sword in one hand and a broom handle mauser in the other is pretty damn cool to be yeah. with, right? And then you throw the rest of it in there. So it was, uh, I liked the whole movie. The, the, uh, it, it had to win me over because I say the Stockholm thing of falling for your kidnapper and all that, that's, right. that's going to be a tiresome, but, uh, well, under these circumstances, under these circumstances, I don't know if I were her, I could probably have fallen for him too. But notable, <laughs> notable in this movie is the complete absence of physical contact between the love interest and the hero. Yes, 
Yes. You never even kissed her. You know, never, what I don't about know that? Ever called her by her. Never called. He only called her by her first name once. That was the most right. When she insisted, form of is when he called her by her first name. Right, Mrs. Petty Carris, you're a lot yes. of trouble. Yes. <laughs> over and over. So that thing is. Uh, that's just one of my favorite films, and that's why I wanted it in the list because I enjoyed it for so long, so many times, and I wanted to bring it to your attention. The Wind and the Lion, a John Milius film. Uh, look that one up. Oh, got lots of lots of things like that on here. Um, um, things that you would normally think of as classic films we've got on here. Gone with the Wind, for example, 1939. Gone with the Wind. When I was a little boy, Gone with the Wind was the movie. And every time it was at the theater, my parents would go see it because they wanted to see it again. It was it was probably too long to put on TV, and uh, they regarded it as uh, the best film that ever been made. My mother was in love with Clark Gable, and uh, you know uh, Vivian Lee was in it, and she was a just a beautiful woman. Oh my God, and. Uh, Lots of, lots of memorable characters. Big budget film, filmed in 1939. So my my parents were kids when it came out. They were in their early 20s probably when they first saw the thing. And it would it would be like uh, some of these other important movies are to me. Uh, just you know, they just had all these images from the film. It was shot in color. It was a it was a beautiful photography. Uh, it's an important movie, and uh, I'm not really interested in watching it again. It's to me, it's dated. But at the time, it was very important, and at the time, it stomped a hole in most other movies of of that age. So it's, much it's bigger important. a project, you know. Such an event. I, at the time, it was exceptionally important. It's still an important film. I, I don't know that I would set through it again. It's been so long. I don't know how many hours it is. I don't know that I. I think that it is dated. I think that it is hard to relate to more than most. Right. Um, I I think that sometimes we forget. You know, after you get to a point in life where you're doing a lot of travel and you see a lot of stuff, you forget that 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 seeing those. You know, prior to YouTube and TikTok for people that don't travel, you don't see you don't see that. So that was the only uh, lens that a lot of people had into something other than their day to day existence. Yeah, well, that's a very good point. I mean, in this thing was 1939, prior to world our involvement in World War II, uh, between the wars, existence was hard. Nobody had any money. We're just coming out of the depression. Uh, getting to go to the show was a big deal. I mean, you know, we we forget here in, in 2022, we forget that in 1940, you know, 80 years ago, uh, <laughs> you know, the, the, the things you take for granted, the, 
the internet that you're watching this on one way or another, your phone, your laptop, all this shit. I mean, few people had a television in 1940. And uh, if you got to see a moving picture, you had to go to a theater and buy a ticket and go in and sit down with 400 other people in the room and respectfully shut the fuck up so everybody else could 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 watch the show. People went to the show. People dressed up to go to the show. And just and just picking up the just coming up with the money and the time and the effort to do all that to get to the theater might have been a might have been a problem for a lot of people. This was this was a the experience of a month. You know, we're going to go to the show. We've heard this thing. Uh, Gone with the wind is a great big deal, and we want to we want to see it. Everybody wants to see this, and we want to go down and be a part of it. So you put on your coat and tie, and you, you know, everybody piled in the car, and uh, or walked if you were close enough down to the theater, and you bought tickets at the box office out in front, and you walked in, and if you had the money, you bought some popcorn and a, you know, soft drink. So- and went it's in. a damn big event. Big event. Big event for a life that was devoid of events. And yes. It, and these people. <laughs> exactly right. Yeah. Devoid of pleasant events. Yeah. Most of them was not pleasant. Most yes. of them were not pleasant. Yeah. And here is entertainment. And it was important to these people. It was a very important film. And in the 60s, my parents were still in love with this movie. And. Uh, it was uh, it was a big deal to get to see it, and it's a big deal for me to watch their reaction to it, because they were thoroughly yeah. enthralled with this thing. You know, right. the, it, those of you that aren't familiar with the story, it's about the Civil War and the end of slavery, and you know, Colonel Butler and and uh, all the all of the events surrounding the the fall of the South. This sort of thing. It's, uh, you know, and it, you have to remember this thing in 1939. That was, those events were not that far in the past for these people. You know. No, especially when you get a, a relatively idealized version of it, right? Yes. You get the, you get the, you get a version that you're comfortable with, right? So, or that they would be comfortable with. So, so, and then, you know, the pleasure of that movie for you is going to be remembering that was pleasurable to your mom and dad well you know that's it would be the equivalent of of me and you looking at a world war ii film because that's about about the same amount of time in the past that in 1939 would have been for the civil war i mean my my mother and father at the time were around people that were alive during those events. Well, yeah, you know, yeah, I guess because like, you, you think get about it, easy, right? Yeah, be, you'd be around a bunch of seventy-year-olds. Sure, sure. We're not far from seventy right now. No, we're not, not at all. And uh, these things were uh, so. So this is uh, "Gone with the Wind" is in here as for historical perspective, and uh, more for more than anything. But another film from 1939 is is in this list for its entertainment. 
value and entertainment perspective, The Wizard of Oz. Both of those films were produced in 1939. Now, what a hell of a year that must have been in the theaters, huh? You had I well, mean, much, flying the monkeys, the, the the you've got a tornado, you've got, you know, a talking tin man, you've got the, the wicked witch. So that poor woman, Margaret Hamilton, that played the, the wicked witch of the West, that was such a piece of typecasting for her. She never, <laughs> never rose above that. Everybody. Hey, you're good she, witch. You're good witch, bad witch things. Very judgy. Oh, it is. We it, don't know. It's very judgy. And, it, good and, witch, uh, bad witch things. Very judgy. And uh, uh, the lady that played the, the good witch, Billy Burke, she was, everybody loved her. This is such a black and white. <laughs> good evil stark contrast that it just resonated with everybody in the audience and you had the magnificent judy garland as a 17 year old kid in the role of her lifetime and uh you had the 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 tin man the cowardly lion and the uh oh who was the third guy the scarecrow. Oh, the man. scarecrow. All those scarecrow. guys. All those guys were major actors back in the 30s and 40s. And uh, their roles were incredibly important. I mean, this 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 film, it's it it also had that the same wonderful film stock look that Gone with the Wind had. The colors were bigger than life, and everything about it was cool. And, the, you know, the the little people, you know, the they used midgets for the for the extras in that in that part of the film. And it was just, you know, and the 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 little dog Toto. Oh, God, how many people wanted a little dog Toto after that? You know. Pay no attention to the man behind the curtain. Pay no attention to that man behind the curtain. Yes. Now, you, if that's not you can leave iconographic, this, I don't know what it is. You can leave this out if you want. If we can cut this out. But that was the first time in the history of mankind midgets were brought together like that. What? And, and the population exploded. There are, pe- there are people now that can trace back their parents meeting on that or great grandparents meeting on that set on that set is that right <laughs> they, they were yeah. fucking everywhere they would open up closets and there would just be like five people fucking in there <laughs> God, <I don't> know. <laughs> yeah we, we'll give that I have, thought I, I have i haven't read that but god bless them if that's the case. And, well there was a <laughs> film about that called under the rainbow mm-hmm. <laughs> that was that was produced about the production of the Wizard of Oz. I, um, I have that, a, It's about 30 years ago they made that movie. You know? I have a VHS they, tape, and in the background you can see that person that hung themselves that they ended up um, coloring out. Oh, really? Jesus yeah, Christ. Yeah, in the, um, one of the scenes where in the woods you can see a body hanging because they didn't catch it. And someone hung themselves on set, and they filmed that entire scene. And you can and see didn't a body catch hanging. The, they didn't catch it. Uh, but all the new ones now, they, uh, brushed, it they brushed it out. Yeah. Well, that's interesting. I've never noticed that before. But, uh, that's a damn hard set. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> yeah. In fact, man. So, Wizard of Oz and Gone uh, with Them, both in 1939. And, I mean, you you know, 
I put both of those in there. I'm not interested in watching either of those films over and over again like I am some of the new ones. But we put this in there because we didn't want you to think we were stupid asses. All right? Because we would have been had we not put those two films in there. Now, along that same line, a film missing from this list is Citizen Kane. I know it's in the top. I know it's the best films ever been made. No, it's not. I have trouble with that movie. It's a it's a decent movie, but it's not the best goddamn film that's ever been made. Don't you know? No, no. It's interesting in terms of cinema history because of the photography and lighting and all this other stuff. But everything that Kubrick made was more important than Citizen Kane. You know, I I haven't seen that in so long. I I would have I've, probably I've seen about once. Guess at one, gave it up. You know. Yeah, I mean, um, you and I probably say had to see it because everybody talks about it too much. And I watched it once. You probably watched it once. And I said, eh, okay, eh, okay, all right, all right. You know, but so that's not on the list. But the other stuff on this list, which is interesting, is, uh, well, we would be remiss where we'd leave out the sound of music now the sound of music um was released in 1964 and julie andrews was a beautiful young woman at the time and uh, uh this thing was a perfect vehicle for her talents as a singer and as an actress and uh if you, this thing is set during World War II, early in World War II. It's probably set about 1938. Is that, is that about right? I would, say, I would think so. It wouldn't be too hard to figure it out because they had I mean, the, it's right. when the Nazis took over it, Austria. Right. Moving in Austria. I, uh, I watched that the other night because we talked about it. So, so uh, one of the things that happens to us is we'll decide the movies we're going to talk about and then at to filming date we start adding movies to it and then all of a sudden you got to do a little homework catch up right so 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 i watched the sound of uh, music the other night and then it, it it like triggered some memories when i was about eight or nine years old uh i enjoyed the movie it's long it's got intermission you got to get your shit together when you go to watch it because it is so long but for me watching that movie the bad guys so the bad guys were the Nazis, obviously. However, for me, the not the nuns were the scariest ones, right? Because bad guys, I'd grown up watching Mission Impossible, I'd grown up watching Johnny Quest, I'd grown up watching a handful of westerns, uh, you know. So I knew what in Man from Uncle grew up watching reruns of Man right. from Uncle. So I knew what to do with bad guys. As soon as this guy that had the whistle, that was always screaming at his kids, as soon as he could get his hands on a gun, he could deal with the bad guys. But up until the very end of that movie, when the nuns are hiding them, I am convinced that the nuns are going to turn on them any fucking second and turn them into the Nazis. So, so as a kid watching the whole way through, I'm waiting for the nuns to go bad. I just know that they're the ones that are bad guys. Now that is some of course, cynical shit, John. <laughs> <laughs> when they, when they, when I understand it completely, but I mean that's. <laughs> when the kids went to visit them, I'm like, don't go in there. <laughs> what are you doing? <laughs> oh, 
but uh, it, of course, the ones were the good guys, as was routinely the case historically. And it was uh, it was very well done. It was very good. And as a kid, I remember when that that damn captain finally got his hands on a gun. I'm like, Good Lord, you've had this trouble the whole time. How come you wait so long to get your hands on a gun, right? And then uh, I I tormented my parents because I wanted to know if he was going to go back and get even with them. And I I had convinced myself that in fact he did go back and got even with all of them somehow. So just to make you feel better about it. Yes. Yeah, well, that's fine. I mean, it's fine. There's no no law that says a movie has to stop at the end of the movie. That's right. You know, that's exactly right. After he got his hand on that gun, he went. But that film was a it was a it was a film of a Rodgers and Hammerstein stage play. And the music in this thing was so good. It was done so well. Uh, songs that you know that you didn't know where they came from are in Sound of Music. If you paid any attention to music at all, uh, you know uh, Edelweiss. You know the song Edelweiss. You know, it's just... Me. Good, beautiful, me. beautiful stuff in this thing, and the photography is amazing, and uh, great big giant it, it, sets. Musicals are hard to pull off, right? Because they really are, yes, because they're yes. they they, they end up looking stupid about half the time, don't they? Yeah, you know. So with um, now, it's impressive to me. I couldn't. I. It, a kind way of saying it is I'm not musically inclined. That would be a kind way of saying it. Uh, so it's impressive to me. The singing and dance is very impressive. But they they pull it all off. It's well done. Songs that you may have grown up hearing or hearing about are all in this movie. And as you said, you don't know where they came from. That's a good right. point. You never knew where they came from, just, but they came from They're just movie. a part of the culture. This yeah, movie's embedded in the culture. Now, a lot of the problems with musicals uh, arise from the fact that if the, for no apparent reason, the cast just breaks out into a song and dance, it's awkward. Uh, My Fair Lady was like that. It's a, it's a nice, it's a nice musical, but it just, you know, it's, it gets to be unbelievable. One musical that completely solved that problem was Fiddler on the Roof. All of the music in Fiddler on the Roof is exactly believable as music where it should be in the script. And so is The Sound of Music. We're, if right. they're singing, they're supposed to be singing right there. And it's not awkward. It's it's a lovely film. And if you haven't seen it, uh, you know, I don't know what to tell you. You're just not trying you'll, very you'll hard if you, if you haven't seen it, you know. Yeah, you'll. You'll appreciate it with fresh eyes, too. If it's Absolutely. been a long time since you've seen it. If it's been a long time, yeah. watch it, because you're going to love it. Yeah. Oh, and what else? Uh, Dr. Strangelove is on here, and we uh, I, did we talk about Dr. Strangelove in the, in the comedy? You, I did. You may have talked about it with, with Rusty. I'm not a, I, uh, I am not as well-versed on Dr. Strangelove. I haven't seen that movie since the what, 80, 80s, probably. Yeah. It's been that long. Well, so why should somebody why should somebody watch that movie now, Rip? Well, because it's got Peter Sellers in it, and if you don't need to know anything right. else, it's a Peter Sellers film. He plays we three different characters in the movie, and 
the 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 goddamn guy was I, I, such an awesome talent. I mean, this thing was set in the Cold War, and um, anybody that remembers the Cold War remembers that everybody walked on eggshells all the time because, you know, there could be a nuclear bomb, right? And this thing, this thing is about a nuclear bomb, but it it makes fun of it. This is a very black comedy, and it is uh, uh, it's important in that it's a glimpse into the mindset of everybody involved in administering power during the Cold War, and it shows you what a bunch of fools these people were. And it's funny, and it's, uh, it, 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 you know, in addition to the fact Peter Sellers is, delivers three amazing performances in this thing. It's just, uh, uh, the thing is, is, a, is a terribly important film, and you need to watch Dr. Strangelove if, you're, uh, if you haven't ever seen it. It will be a, it'll be a lot of fun for you to watch. Yeah. Uh, Oh God, and and I've got some other things on here. Uh, what about the sixth sense? You want to talk about the sixth. Sixth sense is uh, yeah, that's that's on here too. Sixth sense is is uh, a uh, M Night Shyamalan film. When was that made? Ninety nine. Ninety nine. It's been quite. A, I didn't realize it'd been that long ago. Bruce Willis is in this, and. Uh, it's uh he just retired from acting that's what i heard that's what i heard he's having some Speech having some problems. Cogn- cognitive yeah. problems and uh the poor guy but he had no problems at all in this film he's and bruce willis has been an important actor for a very long time mm-hmm. this is kind of a this kind of this film was kind of a departure for him wouldn't you say john it, it was so so when you first so the you know, there's so many things that he does there that everybody else has tried to do later, the director and Bruce Willis, that they didn't capture, that you have a tendency to forget how important the source material was. So with Bruce Willis, he, you know, he, we'd already accepted him as, uh, as, a, as an action guy, as a character guy, as uh, he'd already been diehard by then, right? He'd already done a diehard thing. So then you've got Bruce Willis, and, um, and he sells it. And he worked with that kid actor. When when adults work with kids, you know, there's temptations. You wanna either you wanna either look like the, the male actor talking or the adult actor talking to a kid, they can look like that they're being impatient, they can look like uh, they're kind of condescending, or uh, they can sometimes look like they're coaching the kid, right? They're they're coaching the kid, and Bruce doesn't do that at all during that movie he completely is simply acting and he's he's behaving towards that little guy that little kid as an actor would and that that's a it's a hard thing to do so when when bruce willis is doing that and and you're 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 showing bruce willis he's got this journey he had he was a fail he, he failed with this kid who by the way i don't know if you knew that but the guy that was in the bathroom hiding the, the kid that he originally failed the one kid that originally saw the ghosts was Donnie Wahlberg. Did you know that? Yeah. yeah. That's 
that skinny kid with the underwear yeah. was Donnie yeah, Wahlberg. Mark the, Wahlberg's brother. Right. And he had he had uh, he had petitioned for that role. He really wanted that role. So so that um, there were so many wonderful moments in that role in that movie that were very soft cells, you know. The 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 mother of the kid uh, was that Tony Collette maybe. Is that right? Tony yes. Collette's at the mom. She 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 didn't get a lot of love for that role, but it was a difficult role to pull off and she sold it too. She's doing the best she can, right? So all these horror movies that are important or all these movies that are important, they take something that's fantastical and then they relate it to something that people in the audience um, understand. So you got a single mom doing the best she can that's exasperated with this kid that opens up all the damn drawers and, and everything when she, she steps out of the room. So she, so she had to you had to really sell that performance. I think it's an I think it's an important movie. I think it gets ignored sometimes. I think people people forget how good it was. Well, I hadn't paid any attention to it till you mentioned it, and I watched it a couple of weeks ago. And uh, you know, Shy Amelin is famous for dragging the audience along, and then at the end of the film, kicking you in the balls. You yes. know, like an Arthur C. Clarke short story. You know, yes. you don't see this coming at all. And he but did it makes great, sense. Did He's a given great you the job of this in this yeah. in this film. This is far better than a Hitchcock movie. Yes, I think. Yeah, I anyway, I, a lot of people disagree with that, but but I think that uh, the guy's got it. All of the films I've seen that he's done like that have been very very effective. To to pull that to pull that twist that pulling the rug out from you, kicking your ball, do that. The audience not to feel cheated. You have to have provided all the evidence throughout the movie that this was the case. Yes. And then when you watch the movie again, you say, well, it makes perfectly good sense. Right. Of course I saw this. Right? I, when I, you didn't see it. Yeah, he, you didn't see it because no. although he showed it to you, he showed it to you in a way so that you wouldn't see it. Yes, that's, that's exactly right. careful. That's and very so after, carefully see, crafted in terms of the script and the shots and the whole thing. So it's oh, yeah. uh, this thing is, uh, I'm not going to spoil it for you if you haven't uh, ever seen this, but The Sixth Sense uh, is uh, is on this list for that for that reason. It's uh, marvelously effective. Yeah, it's, it's a very... Um, it, it demands a lot of all the actors and everybody, even the the uh, Bruce Willis's wife in the movie. She doesn't get a lot of screen time. You know, her going from being cold and distant in the beginning of the movie, and then and that change in the end of the movie. Uh, it takes a lot for an actor to pull that off, and it's a pretty talented director to get that, or to capture that. Mm -hmm. uh, yeah, the more time the more times you watch that movie, I think the more you'll appreciate it. I hadn't seen it uh, in a long time, and then the other night I saw it pop up on one of my services, and uh, I clicked on it and rewatched it. And uh, it's got some very powerful scenes in it. I think appreciate yeah. it if they watched it. Yeah, it does. Uh, I'm gonna watch it again here pretty soon, just to watch it with uh, having watched it that first time, and because I didn't remember how the thing ended. Because really? I had oh, no, great. I hadn't seen it since 1999 or 2000, and I didn't that's remember great. how it ended. So I'm just watching it like a newbie the first time, and man, 
You know, you get to yeah. the end of the thing. And so I'm going to watch it again just so I can see with that perspective how he brings you through the through the plot to arrive at that conclusion. It's I'm, I'm right. I know I'll enjoy it. Uh, we would be uh, there, there. are several other films on here we need to talk about, and uh, before we get to our final five, To Kill a Mockingbird. You know, I had gone all my adult life having not seen that film, having not read the book until two or three years ago. Uh, To Kill a Mockingbird is Gregory Peck's finest role. And I don't think anybody disputes that. Uh, Why should somebody watch it now? Do what? Why should somebody watch it now? You, you've heard it. You, you heard it in school. You heard about heard it in school. Talk about it, and uh, but you've never seen that movie. Why would you watch it now? Well, because uh, one of the best reasons I can think of is because some school board in California banned it. Well, then that makes you got to watch it right off. Now, the if a school board in California bans a film, you need to watch the damn thing. Yeah, right. You need to watch the thing. Uh, I think the school board banned it for the same reasons that school boards always ban things is because the people on the school board are gutless pussies. I don't know what it is about being elected to a school board that chops a man's balls off, but it always does. Uh, The N-word is spoken several times in this film, right? Now, it's set in 1951 in Mississippi. Yeah, you anticipate know. hearing it, right. I mean, mm-hmm. what do you think they're going to say? You know, yeah. one of the pivotal characters in the role is a, a black man who's been accused of rape. And Greg, Gregory Peck's assigned to... Gregory Peck's not assigned. To, he takes the case. Out of his case, own is it, Atticus Finch, the great attorney Atticus, Atticus Finch, Atticus takes the case because the man needs to be represented. And I wouldn't have recalled that. I wouldn't have recalled that name. I've heard it. I've heard Atticus the name. Finch and then his two kids. Yeah. The little girl's name is Scout, and that that girl that played that role was just perfect. She was absolutely perfect in that film. And uh, she and Gregory Peck developed quite a relationship during the shooting of the film that lasted both of their lives. And uh, it was a, uh, I don't know, that, that thing is, is such a powerful film. Uh, I don't think it's appreciated adequately for what it, for what it actually is. It's... Uh, it's it's an amazing movie. It, it really is. I can, I can picture him in a courtroom. I can see him wearing a suit. I can picture picture the character, but I I haven't seen the movie in so long. I I probably wasn't a grown up when I saw it. You, well, know you I mean? need I to watch it tonight, John. It's it's just yeah. it's just absolutely amazing. It really is. Yeah. And the characters in this thing are. I, 
If you read the book, this is a masterful adaptation of this novel. The novel was written by uh, a lady by the name of Harper Lee, who only wrote a couple of other things and was basically not heard of for most of the rest of her life. She just recently died two or three years ago. And uh, this novel was, oh, it's regarded as one of the top ten American novels of all time. And uh, with good reason. With good reason, it's a it's masterful. And this movie is a masterful adaptation of that novel. And uh, you, you need well, was, well, to watch the movie. I'll put that on. And then you're going to want to read the book. I'll watch it. You're going to want to read the book. So, yeah, I would suggest that that you look at To Killing Mockingbird. Those of you that haven't seen this film, those of you that have seen it know exactly what I'm talking about. Those of you that have not, need to, that'd be the first thing on the list you need to watch if you haven't seen it. And you might be surprised that I put this in. Pulp Fiction. One of the, I mean, that was a groundbreaking film, you know. I so mean, it's the third. It's the third, the third of Tarantino's films. Uh, third, third script Tarantino wrote. Third script Tarantino. I, I believe wrote. so. Uh, the first, first film he wrote Reservoir Dogs. Reservoir was, Dogs. Was Reservoir Dogs, and this was the follow-up to Reservoir Dogs. First, yeah, True Romance. The first, been there. True. Yeah, the first script he wrote was True Romance, right? But he didn't and direct it, that. He did not, no. But you get down to Pulp Fiction, and it was a it was an inventive way to tell a story because it jumps around in time, and lots and lots of films since then have made use of that of that device. So the like the film the Memento, following... you remember that? Tell me again. Memento, Memento. Yes, I remember Memento. Couldn't remember anything, so he had to tattoo everything on himself, and they shoot that thing yeah. from finish yeah, yeah. to start. And yes. so it was a they played with with the time factor on that. But Pulp Fiction was starts in the you know it, it shows you random pieces of this story in random yes. orders of events, and I had never seen a movie like that. It was damned interesting. It was damned interesting. It was a, uh, there are a whole bunch of classic lines from Pulp Fiction that have entered the culture. It restarted John Travolta's career. Oh, right? completely. Absolutely. John absolutely. Career. John Travolta needs to buy Quentin Tarantino a couple of beers, you know? <laughs> yeah. He, he the really the film, film work in the movie, everything was flawless about it. When you, so you've got you've got uh, the two characters. You've got uh, uh, John Travolta, and then uh, well, Jules. Jules. John, so uh, was everybody's primary introduction to Samuel L. Jackson, and right. uh, so, so Jules, Jules, and John Travolta are walking up the past doorway to Vincent, lean on Vincent money. Vega. Jules and, and Vincent Vega. Vincent Vega, and the camera. They keep walking past the door, and the camera stops. And waits for him, sort of impatiently. Do you know what I mean? So you're like they're waiting for action to happen, and they're they're still just jabbering away, and you're waiting for something to happen. So many things of that were glorious. When when uh, Jules when Jules said he was gonna wander the earth like Cain, and Vincent Vegas said that's like 
You mean you're going to be homeless or <laughs> you're going to be a bum? <laughs> be a bum. <laughs> oh God, oh man. In the oh, but all of the yeah, I mean, it's impossible to read the scene in the diner. Oh my God. Yes. The scene in the I've so, eaten in the diner that stood in for the interiors of that shot in California. <laughs> That's pretty good. Uh, they, the exterior is a diner that's no longer there. But the interior, well, there's probably 40 diners in Los Angeles that look exactly the same. Yeah. yeah. And uh, my, I'm, I've eaten in the one they used. And it's 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 spooky to be in there. But it's uh, that, that scene in the diner was just, I, I, I don't know. That's, man. What a hell, was, that nobody it, ever seen anything it, like that before. Two two amateurs, two amateurs facing two professionals, right? Yes. That's what that's right? what it was. Two, two complete amateurs and they're facing two people that just absolutely do this for a living. Yeah. This is what they do all day long. There's nothing ice in them. their veins. You yeah. are like little puppies to them. They don't even exist as far as they yeah. are. That's exactly right. Yeah. <laughs> that was great. And Bruce Bruce Willis's role in it, right? Yeah. Oh. And the discussion about where the watch came from that just came out of nowhere, right? right. Of how he smuggled that watch out of Vietnam. Christopher the, the, the Walken's discussion. role in that. It just, oh, God. Came out of nowhere. Uh, yeah, it's, uh, it's, it's some of his finest work. I would, put, I would put Pulp Fiction as the best, and I would put a Once Upon a Time in Hollywood very close to Very Pulp close. That was a damn good movie, too. I, just a couple of years ago. Yeah. And Brad Pitt is in that and uh he's who flawless else is in it with Brad Pitt uh Leonardo DiCaprio. Leonardo DiCaprio. Leo DiCaprio, that's right. Yeah, Brad Pitt was flawless in that. Yeah, um, that was one of his best films. There's no doubt. It, he was such a strong presence in that. <laughs> he goes in the house, right, and he has to deal with all these lunatics inside the house. He comes back out in the house and she is still standing there in the driveway and he goes, God damn it. <laughs> you remember that? <laughs> it's perfect. It was just absolutely perfect. Oh, man. When, when he hit that, when he uh, threw that dog food and he hit that damn girl in the face, that was a, that was a perfect scene. Do you know what that, I mean? That yeah. whole scene was just blocked out perfectly. Uh, all of that was good. Uh, if any, if anybody out there hasn't seen True Romance yet, uh, it's G James Gandolfini's most evil role. Uh, if you want to see him in his most evil, Patricia Arquette's beautiful. Christian Slater does a superb job. That True Romance is uh, is really well done. That was Tony Scott that directed that. Yeah, Ridley's was brother. Was Gary yeah. Oldman in that? Yeah, so, I think yeah, Gary Oldman yeah, was in was that, in, wasn't he? Yeah. You just didn't know it because he was. He's <laughs> Gary Oldman. He's he was Gary Oldman. <laughs> he was dreadlocked up with a fake eyeball yeah. and all that stuff. Yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah. <laughs> <laughs> oh God! Nick sent me this fucking meme. I'm gonna read this meme to you. Oh no! A couple of days ago. Oh, it's. Oh, it's just the. It's just fucking amazing. Uh, and you've seen this picture several times woman and a guy laying in bed she's got her back to him he's got his back to her and you know both of them wide awake eyes wide open her 
he's probably thinking about other women. Him, how do I know she's not just Gary Oldman <laughs> researching his next role? <laughs> <laughs> I don't know. Uh, I, where did you find this damn thing? Oh, somewhere on That's funny. God, I don't Someone had it on Instagram. That's just funny as hell. Oh, God. I, who's got the time to come up with all these memes? I, I, don't, I don't know, know but it's, that's pretty damn funny. <laughs> now, Unforgiven is on here. We talked about Unforgiven in the Western. Unforgiven is one of three of the movies on this list, including Sound and Music, and uh, Gone with the Wind that won Best Picture. And it was Best Picture of 1993. And we had talked about it on the Western, in the Western genre, where we did our Western movies discussion. Now, this damn thing, is it's hard for me to reconcile myself with the idea that this movie is almost 30 years old. Impossible. Because it just, you know, it came out at a time when nobody was making westerns. Nobody's making westerns. Uh, you know, early nineties, there wasn't any westerns, you know. And here Eastwood comes out with this thing. And it's not just a western, it is one of the best goddamn movies that's ever been made. And it's just pushes all of the correct buttons. And it was I mean it's 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 hard if it's flawless. It is. It is a flawless film. It's an absolutely, it's one of these films that just, you can't, there's not anything in it that's wrong. There's nothing in it to improve. Everything in it is perfect. All of the shots, all of the dialogue, all the plot elements, everything is perfect. Yeah, the, the, the thing I read about that is that Clint Eastwood got the script and he waited till he got old enough to play the role. And he's a notoriously fast director. So some uh, another director might have somebody do something a dozen times. Clint Eastwood says, uh, he doesn't say action. He says, all right, go ahead or start. And then they do their thing. And then he says, all right, that's fine. Uh, so with this movie, he thought about it until he got old enough to do it. And he'd worked out every single angle, every single shot. He'd already worked all that out in his head. So it was... <laughs> It's, it was flawless because of a whole bunch of reasons, but one of the reasons was is he'd been thinking about it for so long. Right. Well, uh, where did he get the script? I don't recall. I, I, don't, I, don't, I don't remember either, but uh, he is uh, – this thing is just an amazing story, you know. When You know, Rip, we used to go into video stores. They'd have these things sitting on the counter to advertise the movies so when you right. walked up to the get it and if you knew people that worked at the video store you could you could get yourself one of these right yeah one of these things that's right yeah yeah well that's uh <laughs> unforgiving he has to they they killed ned yes they did they, they killed, killed ned. ned who didn't have it coming to him no no and, ned didn't uh, have it william money decides yeah i think i'm gonna start drinking again he's good at it too and uh terrible yeah. things happen to these he, people he, he gets his shit together and um he's what did he say i've killed everything that's walked or crawled or something of some you know yeah. just classic wonderful lines and uh 
it, it's really well done. If you look deeper in the movie, you can see that they've like little Bill. You can yeah, see that Gene Hackman's performance in that was just. I mean, you don't know whether to like the guy or hate the guy. You know, he's kind of a. You know, he's got aspects of. You want to hate him, but then you've got aspects of well, he's just doing his job, kind of thing. You know. Uh, it was. It's it's a lot going on in that movie. Did you know Gene Hackman was a big dude? Gene Hackman's like six two. I didn't know he mm. was that. Big. Yeah, I kind of gathered that. I didn't ever get the impression he was a short guy. He, uh, you know, he certainly beat the piss out of Richard Harris in this oh. damn thing. Oh my Jesus God, Christ. that was a that was a brutal scene. I don't know how they did that without hurting everybody, but. Uh, they shit the the stunt guys that Eastwood works with he's been working with him for his whole life so those guys got shit dialed in like you wouldn't believe you know what I mean they, yeah. they just a guy like a guy like Eastwood can have whatever he wants when he does a movie so he would I mean if you were a stunt man with him in the seventies you probably had a job as a production assistant in the nineties when you were seventy years old and you were sitting around on a box you know just to keep you around right. so he was that the all his movies were dialed in for that as, as i remember reading yeah well he was uh uh hackman was uh really that, that may have been hackman's i don't know what would be hackman's better work than that uh no, i nothing. i can't i don't remember seeing him in a better role than no. Little Bill. Hmm. He know. had a bunch of those movies where he played to every man spy that were really good, you know, like you, the French the connection, that kind of thing. Yeah, stuff. So, but no, I would say he, uh, yeah, he was, uh, that was his best role. He gave, it had the most work with, right? Right. I think he had the most work with. Yeah. Right. Big range of emotions he got to display and, yeah. and, uh, you know, it's just it's so unforgiving, best picture material stuff yep. certainly and i'm kind of proud of the academy for having enough sense to go against their nature and and vote a western as best picture because that hadn't happened very often you know you can't, you can't take anything these guys do seriously. no i'm not you know i don't really care about the fucking academy but yeah uh you can see sound of music and you can see gone with wind uh well, I'm, I'm glad they had enough sense to nominate and vote for Unforgiven for Best Picture because it certainly was. Yeah. And then we would be complete idiots if we left out Star Wars. Now, you know, I, I, you know, Rusty over here is has got something seriously wrong with him <laughs> about Star Wars. But Oh, about Star Wars. I was going to say, does yeah. that have something to do with the movie discussion? Or? No, no. That, well, there are other things, too. But the, in terms of the movie discussion, uh, Rusty's, uh, I, I don't know what you would call this obsession he has with it. Uh, We're talking not, about I, the original I, it, trilogy. It's not healthy. The original trilogy is the closest thing I have to religion. The, yeah, the the original trilogy. I don't give a shit about the, any of those other things they've done, 
But that right, first yeah. movie that came out, when was that, 78 or 9? 77. 77, might I believe have been. so. Might have been 77. Uh, nobody had ever seen anything like that. Lucas invented a way to film shit in outer space. You, you, you just get tossed into this thing, and nobody's explaining anything, and you're trying to catch up, and you've got all this weirdness going on, and you don't know what any of it means. It's, it's, uh, it was really, for the time and now it holds up oh Once again, it's just every, it's everything they've done since then has been horrible and makes it hard to watch it well uh, and and then they came back in and cg'd a bunch of fucking big stupid looking animals into the goddamn first movie which to me is always the first movie it's star wars it's not the fourth episode or any of that shit it's not the new title they've given it it's not the new monsters in the in the background of the scenes of the i mean what's wrong with just the first version of that i I don't understand it. It was it was a perfect film. It it yeah. was just a classic hero tale. And why you why Lucas got so weak in the knees that he felt like he needed to come he needed to come back in and paint things into the Mona Lisa. You know Lucas, why Lucas got in, obsessed with technology is what it was. He felt that he didn't have the right technology to make those movies, which he clearly did. But and he had, had to go exactly back. the right technology. But he felt like he had to go back and put in now technology. Well, and you'll notice that Ridley Scott had the sense to not do that. Yeah, yeah. Ridley Scott hasn't touched Alien because mm-hmm. he doesn't need touching. He doesn't need fucking touching. All right. That's right. Now Ridley Scott came back and redid Blade Runner, but that wasn't because of anything he did wrong to the theatrical release. It's what the studio Studio, did to it. And he went back and corrected what they had fucked up. They left some stuff out, and they had the narration and all this other stuff. And if you guys are going to watch Blade Runner, which we discussed in our science fiction show, was one of the five best science fiction movies of all time, you, you you need to not watch the theatrical version. You need to watch what I think is called the final cut. Final cut, yes. But Lucas, something is wrong with it, boy. You know? I don't know what. I, you can't. So the, the issue with being, with investing in a character is that you still don't have any control over that character. So it's why it makes it, you know, it's why you don't go to see movies that you think are going to disappoint you. Because you're invested in these characters, but you don't control them. So somebody else can do whatever the shit they want to them after you've already invested in them and you enjoy them. So right. uh, it, it makes it very difficult. I mean, they're their character. They create and they can do whatever the hell they want to with them. I just don't have to participate when it goes in a direction that makes no sense to me. Right, right. And thus you're done with the Winter Soldier thing, right? No, I done understand. Winter Soldier, done with Star Wars thing. Done with all that. Yeah, I'm not interested. I got done with I Star not, Wars. I have not seen that last movie, and I refuse to. I, I, Good. The only one of those I watched is the one they did after the last one. So it would be the fourth one they did, mm-hmm. and it stunk. It just stunk. Oh, the, the new trilogy is just horrible. Oh, it's just awful. Which is the one where they introduced that idiot-ass character that somebody thought was funny, Jar Jar Binks? Oh, that, that, was, that, the, was, that was the prequels. That's, that's unnecessary. I didn't yeah. see the proof. Well, the, you, uh, just, you don't want to. I, you don't want to. Just I, pretend like they don't exist. The, le- the Star Wars is the three original films, and that's all it is. That's all it needs to be. 
And the um, but I, when I the one where, where the where Han Solo got killed, oh God, Force it, Awakens, it, it it annoyed me. Mm-hmm. But I thought I'm not the I'm not a huge Star Wars fan. I mean, I enjoyed the movies when they came out, and I thought they were spectacular. But I'm not. It's not something I followed. It's not something I was a huge fan about. And I thought, if this annoys me, what the hell is it doing to people that really do? That are really vested in the franchise. And maybe sure. stop watching them. Yep. I, uh, the new like, ones. Not going to do it, you know. I uh, First three, I saw that when they came out at the theater, because I was a big fan. But then I saw that fourth one, and I thought, this is pointless. These people are just milking a dead dairy cow at this point, And it's just not good. What's coming out is not good. You know? The uh, the best thing that came out of the prequels was um, was uh, Ewan McGregor Obi Wan. That was the best thing. He was an excellent Obi Wan. But um, no, there's a lot of lot of bad things. The new ones made me appreciate the prequels more. I'll say that. Oh. Well, yeah, yeah. At least the new at least the prequels felt like Star Wars. These new ones do not. I I, I every once in a while I'll put. The, uh, the original Star Wars mm-hmm. film in, and I just enjoy the hell yeah. out of that. It's so good. Mm-hmm. It is yeah. so good. You know, it's uh, uh, Mark... Uh, Mark Hamill. It's Hamill. Mark Hamill before the wreck. Yeah, yeah. So he looks different, mm-hmm. you know. I mean, if you like if you like Mark Hamill, have you seen Corvette Summer? I have, yes. Corvette Summer is a great film yeah. with him. That was before Lord, Star Wars. Before Star Wars, yeah. That's what got him that role. Yeah. And, uh, yeah, he Lord was real good in that. He was – but then, you know, he had a horrible car wreck and everything. Just, you know, he looked different and everything. It's just – but the, the first film was was the – was cemented the franchise and everybody's head, and then they managed to destroy what they'd made. Anyway, the first one is still on the list. One of the best movies in of all time. It very, very important. Redefined how space opera should be conducted. You know, mm-hmm. absolutely. And we have to mention also the Exorcist. Exorcist. And we talked about the Exorcist and the horror genre. The Exorcist is, and we we said this at the time. Exorcist is not just the best horror film that's ever been made. It's one of the best films of all time. Any genre. It transcends the genre. I like Event Horizon as a horror movie. You know, it's enjoyable as a horror movie. Uh, But it's not one of the great films of all time. No one would ever say that about it. You know, but it's it's a good horror movie, but it's not... I mean... Exorcist is the one of the best films that's ever been made. It's the most most effective in terms of being effective in its genre. It's far above anything that's ever been filmed in that genre, and it is an amazing story on film. It's just the last know, time the, I the last time I saw it, it would have been in a drive-in when I was a kid. So I don't know. Does it hold up? Have you seen it recently? I've seen it, it within the past six months, and it's Good. astonishing. Good. I'll give it a shot. It's then. astonishing. Why the the goddamn thing is the best horror movie that's ever been made. There's no, it will it will it's oh shit, you gotta watch like that. It. You gotta watch that. Let me know what what you think when you do. It is an increasingly 
unpleasant movie to watch. <laughs> but it it's really good. is. Though. But it's yeah. good. That's the thing. It's it's not fun, but it's good. Yes, it yeah, is. Yeah. No, it's it's a difficult film. Yeah, it's a difficult film. It's not difficult enough that it's not difficult in the sense that you don't want to ever watch it yeah, again. Yeah, yeah, yeah. It is difficult in that it evokes such emotions. You're on a journey. Among the people that watch, I mean, I remember stories about this damn thing. Uh, when this thing came out in theaters, there were people getting up out of the theater and running out the front door. People fainting. People fainted. Yeah. People were seen when when the the demon was explaining to the priest that his mother was in in hell and that he his was mother was sucking cocks in hell. <laughs> And, and Your mother you, sucks cocks in hell. Now that was too much for a lot of people. <laughs> well, you yeah, know, that's pretty. At the time, that was just a little bit more than anybody wanted to hear. And you know, the, the uh, little Reagan stabbing herself in the crotch with the crucifix. All of these, this utter, absolute blasphemy violations of the, of the, of the, you know the religious sensibilities of so many people have you walked you know in the vomit there? and the head turning around all this shit it was just it, it it was at the time that that was you know it was it was tough it was have you walked tough. up to a long set of a long set of concrete steps a real long set of concrete steps and i thought about that priest tumbling down those damn steps <laughs> oh goddamn! those things that's a famous set of steps yeah, still there in georgetown yeah and uh it is uh oh god yeah I, I i and if you listen to the the commentary track that is on the the blu-ray release of that thing what you what you realize is that william friedkin actually viewed this this film as a documentary he was, you know, he wasn't making a movie about the fiction of demon possession. In his mind, this this happens, and he was trying to to produce the most realistic presentation of the phenomenon that he could. Jesus Christ! I oh, it's it's. Uh, it's uh, oh God damn! It's yeah. Exorcist is on this list for a very good reason. Absolutely. If you haven't, those of you that haven't watched it yet, yeah, move that up to the top of the list. The Exorcist. Now, make sure you get the first one. Because the second one was an embarrassing mess. And the third one was a... I remember about the second one that I really liked is when he, is when, was it George C. Scott gave the speech about, about how horrible everything was right before they peeled him off the ceiling. Do you remember that scene? No, George I don't. I don't. I haven't watched the second one but one time because I thought it was terrible. I really did. It was just, if you if you watch it and you've got the first one in your head, uh, having watched it recently, you're not going to be able to, you're not going to be able to finish it. It's, yeah. it's, it's just not any fucking good. But, uh, Watch the first one and, and tell me what you think. I will. All right. Now, finally, we get to the top of the list. All right. <laughs> finally, after all of that preamble and bullshit, we get to the top of the list. 
Now, let us uh, let's start, and I'm just gonna. This is in no. This is not really in any particular order. All right. These are just the five best ones. All right. And uh, John and I are in complete agreement on all this stuff. And uh, I don't know. You you may not agree with me on the lion and winter being on there. Now, I know you just watched this recently, so let's just start off with the lion and winter. So the lion and winter is about, uh, this is in, said in the 1300s, and I, it's about King Henry and his three children, Richard, of Richard the Lionheart fame, Jeffrey, uh, and uh, Johnny. Now, Richard is played by Anthony Hopkins, and this is this is a an early role for Hopkins. Uh, Jeffrey, the middle child, is played by John Castle, and Nigel Terry. I think this is his first role. Is uh, is John, and uh, the two lead roles of Henry and Eleanor, the king and queen, are played by. Peter O'Toole and Catherine Hepburn. Catherine Hepburn won the Best Actress Award for this role. She is astonishing in this thing. And this is this thing is on here primarily for the acting. All right, it's a great story. It's all filmed basically in the castle. So it's all just about the, the characters in the story. Uh, Henry's uh, paramour is played by Jane Merrow, the beautiful British actress Jane Merrow, and her character's name is Alice. And uh, and it's about the interactions between all of these guys and the King of France, who at the time is very young, played by a very young Timothy Dalton. You know, really, his early really, roles. really well, really good in that role. Timothy beautiful Dalton. in the role. Everybody yeah. is good in their role in this film. There's not a there's not a hole in the casting, not a single so, flaw in the casting whatsoever. It was it was so thoroughly done and so professionally executed. It's just an amazing film. Uh, so line line and winner. So that's a saying, right? So line and winner is a is a tough, capable old man, and, and old because he's reached his winter years, yes. right? So his tough, capable guy. He's Henry. reached his winter years, right? And the movie, the movie is like a, every. If you imagine a really bad family reunion, or really passive aggressive Thanksgiving dinner, that's what this movie's about, right? It's just dealing with it's with personal with, interactions with, of the members of this family. So all the passive aggressiveness that they hit, they hit great, great, uh, great points. So you had three three kids. Richard the Lionheart, right? He's he's the he's obviously the toughest one. You got John the youngest one, which is the, the complete useless dude. He's an idiot. He's a complete idiot. He's absolutely <laughs> yeah. worthless. And then William. in the middle is Jeffrey. Yeah, or Jeffrey. Jeffrey's a complete passive aggressive. That's right. Jeffrey so, is a, 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 a Henry says about Jeffrey uh, later in the movie. You remember this comment? He says he's. He doesn't have feelings. He's a device. He's a device. He's got he's gears. Device. He's got gears and levers or something. His gears so and Catherine, levers. <laughs> when, when Catherine Hepburn takes a load off of him after, after they let her out of prison, 
Catherine Hepburn says to all three of them. She greets both of them, and then she just looks at the middle one and doesn't even say a word to him. She doesn't even, doesn't even <laughs> make, make comment on anything. He hates his guts. Yeah, he's, he's not really a human, you know. He, he, he just uh, the uh, Catherine Hepburn's performances were superb. Of course, there was there was a couple really painful scenes. I tried to figure out if she had had any any sort of. Uh, plastic surgery or anything and i know that was very early on so i don't I think that think she that. ever had any plastic surgery i don't, I don't, I don't think, think she, i don't, I don't think, think Catherine she. hepburn ever had any work done because uh Catherine it, hepburn had enough sense to understand that as people age they're they're older looking and still beautiful she, i mean I a, case in point more. is me all right, I think yeah. everyone can understand that I'm a handsome guy. Yeah. And look at John. I don't think now, John's not as old as I am, but we're both very handsome men, and we're not contemplating a facelift. I was at least John's not. My eyes, but no, I don't think it's going to do it. I don't think I'm going to have one. I don't, I don't know. It's, it hurt shit. <laughs> so the, the shoulder's so, uh, already hurt uh, enough. I don't guess I'll. But. Uh, <laughs> No, I don't think Catherine Hepburn. Catherine Hepburn in this role is uh, she's probably in nineteen sixty eight. She when was she born? She's about sixty. In the I world. think she she's probably the actress is probably about sixty when this thing is filmed. Fifty eight, sixty, sixty one, sixty two. Born in 07. Born in 07. So yeah, no, she's so she's right at sixty. So the whole and she's whole beautiful. Movie. She's a beautiful she's woman. Beautiful. So the whole movie, they're all taking barbs at each other the whole time. Oh yeah, and some of, some of it's, it's play. The the humor is very it's, dry in this movie. It's the, very dry. So some of it's playful, but when he hurts her the most, when he says he's going to get a divorce, and he wants a divorce, and he hurts her the most, uh, her breaking down and trying not to break down was pretty heart wrenching. Yeah, that was a very tough scene. Something yes. about an older lady that's holding back tears is just heart wrenching. So, so there was there was a lot of that of of those scenes in there, but that was to me was the most painful to watch. It was, and that is, I don't know how an actor does that to let you in, let the audience in that far into yourself. Doesn't seem like a wise thing to do to me, but she is. Uh, it's just there are several scenes like that where uh and she's already got a little bit of a shake in her head so. and stuff and i think later on the parkinson's advanced a little bit but you can kind of see a little bit of tremor going on and she uses it in exactly the right moments and it's her, just her it, it, God damn, it's just, this is this is why this movie is in here, all right? I, I first saw this probably 40 years ago. And... Uh, I don't think I'd have appreciated it 40 years ago. Uh, I, I appreciated it at some level the first time I saw it, and I appreciated it for the performances. And every time I've watched it since then, I grow more fond of this film. It is... It is uh, absolutely uh, nobody knows what i'm talking about when i say the the lion in winter they 
I look at it as a stage play. It's like a stage play. It is. It's obviously a stage play on film. Yes. Right. So if you view it as a stage play and then you see the performances, I think some of it, like if you're watching somebody on stage and it's too raw, it can be a little hard to watch. And they captured that in a couple of these performances. Like uh, Catherine Hepburn did it. I never saw it out of Peter O'Toole. You never, you never felt pained for him. No, but the young girl that played his mistress, you felt pained for her. You felt yeah. very real for her. So, but she on a stage well. play, John, you, you, you aren't that. You're not seeing a tight shot of the woman's face. You no, know, it's a no. different type of acting. Yes. Yeah, it's well, a it's different a smaller, type of physical performance. I think so. I'm, I don't. Yes, it's a different physical performance, but the the same. There's crossover talents. Right? Yes, sure. So, so the um, I think that there's a degree of of intimacy in film that it's hard to capture on the stage yes. because they're way and the right. movement's got to be bigger, right? So right. The um, I enjoyed the movie. Uh, a friend of mine's daughter said. To him the other day they were picking on her about something and she said your teases are too real right your teases are too real and i thought that was a very interesting statement and i felt that in this movie i felt that some of the barbs and some of the just the mean-spirited family passive aggressive horrible shit it was like ah this is getting a little uncomfortable to watch i'm right. enjoying this so yeah and that's so, why it was so good because it's yeah, the way people good. are that's the way people are. And uh, the first shot of his, uh, Murrow, whatever the actress's name was, the first shot of her sitting there while he's uh, uh, pretending to train his uh, useless son, uh, the first shot of her sitting there was glorious, right? You're like, she's, she's perfect. She's flawless. Yeah. You're talking about Alice, right? Alice. Yes. Alice. Jane Marrow, beautiful girl. Yeah. And uh, I think she's actually still alive. She's in her 80s, but she's she's still alive. And uh, she's one of these women that you know, didn't need any plastic surgery. That's a, it's a very personal choice, and I judge my wife for doing it. But I, I've, I think that I think that maybe people people do it for every reason. But I think a lot of times they feel that they they're pressured. And they do, I think and I so think too. that, I think that's a shame. And it's a pure pressure deal. It is, it is a damn shame they can't say, you know, no, yeah. Yeah. you know, it's a damn shame they can't say that. But who knows? Yeah, who knows? I think I probably will eschew any modifications. You think you? I think I'll skip out on any I, modifications. I'm going to skip on that myself. Yeah. Um, I mean. Right. So anyway, a good an older man with money in his pocket. What the hell are you going to do? Yeah. What else are you going to do? Just keep the money in your pocket. Just keep your money in your pocket. Put it in your face. Nobody gives a shit about what a guy looks like. <laughs> 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 okay. So that's the lion in winter. That's you need to watch that. The uh, amazingly enough, that did not win best picture. That's a, exactly the kind of film that the Academy likes. And they didn't give it best picture, and and it just further shows you what a bunch of fools those people are. 
Right. They might have had a case of the ass against one of the actors when it was Could very well be. Always something like that, you know. Uh, Lion and Winter. All right. Now, uh, 2001, A Space Odyssey, we talked about in our science fiction movie show. 2001 <laughs> is one of the most important films of all time. It was filmed in 1967. You can watch it now. It is approaching 60 years old, and you cannot date it. The special effects were, were Stanley Kubrick thinks about everything very, very hard. He worked with Arthur, Arthur C. Clarke to write this script very, very hard. And the special effects, Douglas Trumbull's special effects department in this thing worked very, very hard to produce realistic science-based special effects on this thing. You'll notice that in 2001, outer space is quiet, like outer space is. When you're in a vacuum, there's silence. You don't hear rocket motors in a vacuum. The, the book uh, that was written from the screenplay was a, I've read the book long, long years ago, and it explains a few things that Kubrick didn't really want explained. Uh, Kubrick's famous for not really caring all that much about whether you understand what he's doing or not. And, uh, and this film was, was based on a short story by Arthur C. Clarke called The Sentinel, which uh, was the, 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 the main plot element for when it's time for space people to come back and look at Earth again, the people on Earth will have gone to the moon and they will have found the present you left there for them. And then the present you left there for them will tell them that you have arrived. And that's the basic theme behind this film uh it's very important in terms so, of the story and in terms of the cinematography involved in it and uh the depictions of the technology in outer space uh for example the space station it, it's hard to believe it's that old so the, the it, it really it, is hard to believe it's that old isn't it and it's it, really hard to believe that we do not have a an artificial gravity rotating space station that substitutes centrifugal force for gravity because that solves lots and lots and lots of problems doesn't it but nobody's even talked about it so the the movie uses it uses a lot of models because he was so precise a guy and he felt yes. he could control and so building those models is is difficult all very large models by the way very large models so a few years ago a a clip unearthed of a guy that was documentary and he got Kubrick on the phone because of some sightings that were supposed to be suspicious sightings. And he got Kubrick on the phone and you can hear Kubrick des describing what the movie was about and what the end meant to the movie. And that's the only time in, in the, in the, all the geeks and sci-fi community went crazy because this is Kubrick telling you what he meant by the movie. And, uh, it's floating around out there if you're interested. Well, I hadn't seen that. I'll have to try to look that up. But uh, 
it'll pop you know, up pretty quick. There were a it, bunch of outtakes and some other film that Kubrick retained possession of. He had at his house. They were yeah. never seen by anybody. Now this, this and upon his more- death, his instructions were to destroy all of that film, and they did it. That's pretty bold. They did it. They went over and burned it. It's apparently in a can. You know, a bunch of stuff that that had been shot that that he had saved, but that he didn't intend for anybody to see. And by God, nobody saw it. Relatively priceless stuff, right? Oh, no, you couldn't, you know. Yeah, yeah. You can't. I mean, this thing, this movie is, is... on the Smithsonian's top 100 movies of all time. It's important historical film, and uh, there wasn't much humor in it. The only humorous thing I can think of from the movie was the little shot of the the zero-gravity toilet thing, you know. That was the only intentional humor in the film at all. The, There's not uh, much humor in it. There's not much dialogue in it. No. It's a lot of long scenes with just classical music playing. Uh, if you're going to watch this movie, it's like a couple of the other movies, unless you're going to have to get your crap together because yeah. you're in for no. In you for need a, to. It's this is work. This is work. Yeah. This so is work. you need to watch it and yeah. pay attention to what it's telling you. And uh, then at the end, it gets really weird. And if you don't enjoy this kind of thing, you you know. The the ending. I won't I won't spoil the ending because people may watch it from this and there's a very good chance they haven't seen it but Kubrick uh, has about a four line description of the entire movie uh, and it it makes sense I mean that's what came across his position is why I never said it he, he said if you say it out loud it sounds silly if you show it on the screen dramatically it makes sense that was his position right, right. so so it, um, it it's very interesting I um, I'm not a I haven't watched it over and over again. I've seen it several times. I've probably seen it within the last 10 years, five years maybe. Uh, but it's, you have to get prepared for it because it's going to be, it's going to be a long time, and there's a, there's a lot of non-dialogue. Uh, there's a lot of yeah. uh, classical playing. Uh, I, the, the music soundtrack in this thing was an extremely interesting approach to a soundtrack at the time. It yeah. was, uh, there was nothing really written for the movie. It was all classical music, and it was some very eclectic, weird-ass classical music, except yeah. for one of the best recordings of the Blue Danube Waltz that's ever been put on tape. The uh, Where would that have been? What scene would that have been? Do you remember? It's all. It appears throughout the movie. Okay. It appears about three times in the movie. The Guyana Ballet Waltz, the Guyana Ballet Suite, it's called by... Uh, Aram Kachaturian is in this thing. Uh, most people remember this for uh, Richard Strauss is also Sprach Zarathustra, and uh, which is a, a one of those kind of things that once you hear it one time, you can't ever forget it. Like Aaron Copeland's Fanfare for the Common Man, you hear it once and it's in your head. And the whole damn thing is, is is the soundtrack is so perfectly matched to this film. This thing is just, you know, I mean, if you, 
if you don't like 2001, I don't know what the hell to tell you, you know. It's just you're not one of these people that can be entertained. Or you're not one of these people that, that speculative thought is fun, you know. I don't, I don't, yeah. uh, you know. It's not an easy movie to watch, though. Not, it no, takes a while. It, it takes does. a while. It takes yeah. commitment, but it, it is. Uh, I've, I've watched it, oh, I've probably watched it 35 times. Oh, throughout my life I've watched it every time it came on when I was a kid every time it was at the theater I'd go see it every time it was on at the student union building I'd go see it it was just you know then I'd rent it then you mm -hmm. know VHS came along and I'd rent it and and then I've you know I've had three or four copies of it on DVD and Blu-ray it's just an important film so that's in the top five and uh uh we we talked about it in our science fiction show, but this is this is transcends a genre, and it's it's an excellent film. Two thousand one, A Space Odyssey by Stanley Kubrick. Now, uh, this is I was talking now about a film uh, that you probably have not seen, and are probably not even aware of, but is nonetheless for film buffs is an is a terribly important film and it's called the last picture show now it's set right here in north texas right here in wichita falls and in archer county in archer city all of the sets you know all the locations in the movie are still there in archer city it was written by larry mcmurtry who was from archer city and who wrote lots and lots of very important things. He wrote Lonesome Dove, which, although it's not a movie, it's a, like a four-part miniseries. It's the best Western that's ever been filmed. I, I don't know anybody that would argue with that. Uh, we didn't include it in the Western movies because it's not a movie. It's about eight hours long, and it's... And as a result, it's it, you, you can't get to call it a movie, but it's it's uh, uh, last picture show is a is a is a novel that he wrote, and it is set in Archer City in 1951-52, and uh, it was filmed in this area back in the early 70s, and uh, it's a Peter Bogdanovich movie. Uh, like Chinatown, so, it was it was uh, it's filmed in black and white, and uh, and it was uh, boy, it's tough. You know, Ben Johnson was in it. A bunch of people, the the Bottoms brothers, Timothy and Sam Bottoms, were in it. Uh, if you're gonna watch this movie, you got it. Number one, it's written by Larry McMurty, and he likes hurting characters you like yeah so yeah, he, he so doesn't written by do McMurdy, he takes great joy in hurting characters you like second thing is is it set in a larry mcmurty's archer city is a miserable shitty horrible, little shitty. north texas dusty town with tumbleweeds blowing down the street and and it's i'm sorry it's still that way <laughs> 
Um, it's it's so, right this minute. You'll recognize it from the movie. They've cleaned it that. up a little bit. There's paint on some stuff now. But it's a very yeah. small town in North Texas that hasn't grown any in about 100 years. And uh, it, people's existences in in McMurtry's version of this of this town are are small and miserable and painful and largely meaningless but so the, the way the story the, is told yeah that's the it, value right it's this the it's from that value and you watch this movie and the first thing you think i mentioned this to somebody uh, the other day i said you know why don't they just fucking leave this place get on a bus get in a car go some fucking place other than this miserable place where there's something else to do and the reason and for that is, is because they can't. they can't because of the inertia aunt the, sally needs to ride to the doctors who's yeah. going to feed mom's dogs that's right who's going to do this and they suck All the, the excuses that you guys living in new york city have come up with over the past two years to Don't stay you? in that miserable shithole brooklyn is another version of archer city right not people in Brooklyn won't agree with that. But it's perfectly obvious to me, having been in both Brooklyn and Archer City, that, that there's a lot of kinship there. There really is. You've got people that know they ought to leave, but have, but have convinced themselves that it's, uh, they can do this another couple of years. And then all of a sudden they're 60. And all of a sudden they're, they're 60. And now the inertia is of a different type. Yeah, it's a different thing. Yeah. The the characters in this movie, the the things they constantly remind you of is how horrible this place is. So Sam the Lion is a large landowner in this town. That's, and what immediately Ben Johnson's to, character. Ben Johnson. So what immediately comes to mind is is what difference does that make if you own these things? What what difference would it make? It's like owning uh, something that has no value. And it's it's like owning my place out in western Wichita County. So you own 180 acres worth of dry brush surrounded by an oil field. Who gives a shit about that? Well, I like it because I'm out there by myself. Well, there's value right? to the space there. I mean, there's the value space. having that space between you and other people. The, the issue with this town is, is that there's no space. It's just misery. Right. I think to me the story was about people people keeping you and convincing you to stay small. Right? I yeah, that's good. Somebody that's let insightful. That's yeah. uh and, and those fuckers will outlive you. If you let somebody do that to you, they're gonna outlive you and then somebody else will come along and they'll do the same thing to them too. It, uh, I don't know much about Larry McMurphy. You've got multi-generational inertia, don't you? Yes. Oh, my gosh, yes. Oh, you and I both grew up in places where you see that everywhere. Oh, yeah. So, yeah. Oh, yeah. But the, the acting in this movie was fabulous. Uh, ben Johnson, uh, I believe he won Best Supporting Actor. He's good in everything. Yeah, every, everything he's in is good. There's no doubt about it. He is a good cowboy. He's just a, he's a good actor. And the main female, the main 
So Cloris Leachman was the widow, right? Cloris or not the widow, Leachman, she, no, she was not a widow. She was married she was to the a, coach. She was uh, in a horrible relationship. She was in a horrible relationship, but this is Cloris Leachman in 1971 or two, and uh, she's gorgeous. She's just such a pretty girl in this movie, and uh, and this was, uh, I believe, this was, uh, and this was, I believe, Sybil Shepherd's first role. Uh, she's very young, still looked good. She played Kinda that. Kind of doesn't anymore, you know, but still at she the time. Perfect ice princess, right? Oh, yes. Oh, yes. Ice princess, flawlessly. And, 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 you, and you wanted to like her character, but you couldn't. But you couldn't like, because you, she's not likable. She's not likable. So you wanted to like her because she's obviously the prettiest girl in town, and she's obviously got the most options, and you want to like her but she plays it so perfectly cold that you just don't like her. And it's a fabulous performance. Yes. In 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 that way, assuming she was even acting. I don't know. I don't you know, know, she might not have even been acting. I don't well, know. There was some great things cast about her. You know, they they filmed. They re reunited most of that cast. Uh, Jeff Bridges was in it, and all those guys got back together for the sequel to this thing. McMurtry wrote a book, a novel called Texasville, that was that was intended as a direct sequel to the Last Picture Show, and it was what happened to these people after they'd grown up. And Texasville, the novel, is one of the funniest books I've ever read. It was, you know, you had to put it down to catch your breath. It was so fucking funny. And they decided, you know, Bogdanovich got in over his head, and he said, "Well, we're going to make a sequel to this." So they all showed up here in Wichita Falls back in the late 80s and decided they were going to make a sequel to the last picture show and this this time they're going to shoot it in color and all locations are the same you know you've got they hired various ranch houses down in archer county and and all that environment down there was was reconstructed and they shot this this movie and uh the cast stayed in Wichita Falls for several weeks while this shooting was going on and I know people that were working at the restaurants where these people ate dinner every night and the the story was that Cloris Leachman was a wonderful fabulously funny gracious lovely woman Everybody loved her. She took care of the wait staff. She was friendly and sweet and kind. And that uh, Sybil Shepherd was a fucking bitch. And uh, but so that's just that's what be... I heard from two or three people. So I don't know. Might not have been true, but uh, that would have made her performance, Sybil Shepherd's performance in the the last picture show, a lot easier to do. So and, you don't know. You don't know, so you got to be careful with these things. Number one, what you said might be absolutely true and yeah. come perfectly from absolute. But then the other thing was, is they might have called her after 18 hours of filming, and you know, she wants to get something to eat, and they want her to pose the whole family. Uh, that's quite likely. It, it, so, it, that's a very good point. In her defense, that's a very good point. But th these people ate in this place with with this uh, with this bunch of wait staff, you know. 
dozens yeah, and, and dozens I'm not of saying, nights. Not true. I'm just no, saying I, I, I know what you I know what you're saying, and that's 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 a distinct possibility. Absolutely. At any it, rate, you know, uh, last picture show is uh, uh, regarded as uh, a classic American film. It's not just you know, not just mm -hmm. me saying that. It's uh, it's painful to watch. I mean, it's worth watching, but it's yeah, painful. It's, it's not, it, it not a fun trip. It isn't a lot of fun. You're absolutely right. It's not one of these things you put in the machine every three or four weeks to have fun watching again. You know, it's, yeah, it's, that's right. But it's uh, it's real good that way, uh, as far as just watching these performances, especially Ben Johnson as Sam the Lion. That was, yeah. uh, what you know. Every time you see Ben Johnson, you just think, my God, what a what a great guy that would have been to go get a beer with. Oh my God, just to bump into him. Oh <laughs> yeah, what a deal. So that's the last picture show. That's in our top five list now couple more uh, uh, let's talk about the Tolkien trilogy this is the Peter Jackson series of films uh, and God almighty those things are coming up on 20 years old too aren't they? weird to think about they're, they're, they, they were just so good and it's uh, they're important for several reasons okay in terms of um, Introducing a new generation of people to this amazing literature that was written back in the 40s and 50s. You know, loosely based on Norse mythology, and uh, but the, the writing was at such a level that it was, you know, it's. I don't think anyone seriously argues that this is not classic literature. Uh, the three movies, the three movies as as they were released were a little bit longer than two hours, and then the the extended versions of all three of them have since been released. And uh, you know the combined total length of these three movies is about eleven hours. It's worth it, watching. It, it's, it's worth, worth watching it. every bit of it. Watch it on a high, on a four K screen, and. Uh, it's just they recently re-released a 4k version that takes care of a lot of the color issues oh really yeah well i, I wonder if they're gonna have another extended release 20th anniversary edition that's got even more material in it. i don't know you this know? The, the 4k version is supposed to uh, improve on a I'll lot of to, the i had um, to update my copies if yeah. that's the case they are uh the most important thing about this this series of three movies uh, that I can tell you is that they are an extremely good adaptation of the book to film and if those of you that have seen book to film adaptations know that lots and lots of them are a problem uh, the the best one I have ever seen was the adaptation of Lonesome Dove to film but the the Tolkien trilogy adapted to film by Peter Jackson was very, very good. Now, that is not to say that the adaptation is absolutely faithful because it is not. They've left some stuff out of this. And a couple of minor story 
lines are left out of the Tom Bombadil stories, not even mentioned in this thing. But in terms of making a, a, a movie that is accessible to an audience, this is a masterpiece. It really is. They included some humor. They lightened things up. They uh, got the most out of their cast. The, uh, the attention to detail in the sets and in the props uh, is just it's just absolutely amazing all of these beautiful weapons that were handmade in the in the shop for these guys all of the armor all of the all of the the big stone castles and all of these things are just work perfectly in this film i i read token as a kid of course as a teenager i i was not i i didn't pour over it like a lot did uh the movie was filmed, all three movies were in a row. They started at one day, and then they filmed all three in a row. So right. they were all filmed at one time. Right. They, they did something that's, that's very smart to do when you're dealing with big fiction is, I read someplace that they said, where you start is very important, and where you start is usually later in the story than you think you should be. So he started later in the story, right? So that movie kicks off later in the story and and it gives you the characters that you like. It's presented in a way that doesn't they don't have to explain every little thing that comes up along the way. And you buy into this world. So you buy in completely into this world that they've created. Uh, it for even for a non-token fan, for a non-fantasy fan, you, this movie will hold up. It's worth yeah. devoting some time to watching this movie. Um some of the takeaways, you know, well, if you, you know, if you, if you had a dozen elves on your side, like Langolese or however you say his name, then you're going to pretty much win wherever you go. If you just right. get a dozen of those guys, you know, but, uh, the movie comes across really well. Uh, it carries the, the weight of, of death. So, and to me, the way they, they carried the weight of death was, is you've got an elf that's lives for, I don't know, a, centuries right is oh, that thousands of years thousands basically so, so for an elf that can live thousands of years for him to sacrifice his life is a pretty big deal and they sold that really yes. well so they sold they sold the the all the magical aspects of it uh the characters the uh the ranger aragon he he um he had a much bigger role in the movies than i remember him having in the books but it's uh, it's an important film. It's meant to be watched as one film, and it's worth getting the highest definition and the best quality copy. So Rusty says there's another cop. There's a new 4K copy coming out. That'll be the one I get. I don't buy many movies. I don't like collecting stuff around me. I don't buy many movies, but I'll buy that. Yeah, and that's an important important thing to say. I mean, I I like to own my movies mm-hmm. because I I don't want netflix to someday decide well you know you don't get a little to watch too it. much uh sexism in that yeah. i think we need to probably pull that out of our yeah. out of our uh, playlist and yeah you know, i don't want them to have that, that power so yeah. i own all of my movies i don't stream anything yeah. and uh you know even if we get starlink up out there and we've got the capacity to, to stream things I probably will continue to buy it DVDs. And this one I've got in two or three versions. 
Mm-hmm. Uh, but if you're going to watch this thing, you're going to watch this trilogy, you need to watch all three of them. You need to get all of them and mm-hmm. watch them back to back. Yeah. Watch them as one movie. And uh, it's three movies. But we're, we're going to treat them here like it's one movie. We're going to make an exception <laughs> here. We're going to treat them as it's one movie. So the 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 damn thing is, uh, well, it's I, it it is it is the introduction to us of the technology of where the, this motion capture stuff, where uh, Andy Circus is playing Gollum, and they're just painting that in. You know, the the character is CG based on an actual human's movement pattern. And was that that was, I mean, Jackson just developed that. For this film, yeah, he yeah. he elevated his yeah Jackson elevated his game, and all of those actors uh, stepped up to the plate. The uh, hell, the name of the the uh, the love interest I can't remember her name. The the actress that played the role, she mm-hmm. was played Arwen. Arwen, yeah, that's uh, that was Liv Tyler. Tyler. Yep, Liv. She was this. Uh, there's never going to be another role for her like that. Right? No, I mean, happen again. So. So she was she was superb in it. Um, I saw the first version I saw was the uh, it wasn't it didn't have the extra material, and then I watched the one with the extra material, and it's very much worthwhile. Oh it's yeah, worthwhile. it adds quite a bit to the story. I saw all three of them in the theater mm-hmm. at first. When they first came out, I went immediately to see all three of them. In fact, that's the last thing I remember really being excited about seeing in a theater was the was, were these three films, and uh, I really haven't been in a theater very much since then. But uh, they they yeah. sure were good, and uh, they're they're terribly important, at least to me. And mm-hmm. I'm glad John agrees with me on that. That we're oh yeah, they're superb. A terribly important movie, and and. And the last thing we're going to talk about, and this is, this is a, this is a, duh kind of thing. <laughs> the Godfather may very well be the first film of that series, and and the second film of that series may be the best films ever made in the United States. They, so, they, in so, the world, they that may be the best. The first Godfather movie may be the best movie of all time. And it's it's hard to say that because there have been so many, I mean, all the stuff on this list. I mean, good God, but The Godfather apply occupies a a, a special place in in movie history. And it's it's, it's template for how people think they're supposed to act if they're in the yeah, mob. I mean, right. it's, a, it's a a very it's an important flick. The uh, the characters they referenced, people spent years trying to figure out who they were particularly talking about. Um, the uh, Michael Michael Corleone is the is now the you know he's the the prodigal son, perfect example of the son returning home from war to start his journey. Uh, it's uh, you have to be patient in parts of it. So the beginning wedding scene, you have to be patient in that part. You have to you have to be patient through that. But then the performances. But, but are all of it, all of it serves a very good narrative purpose. All of it's the, important. The, all of it's important. The, the wedding scene establishes the relationships because these people were, this was all about family. Yep. You know, yeah, they're criminals. But 
they're family criminals. The, the, the payback scene in the end, when Michael's had enough shit and he, it's payback time, is some of the best stuff filmed uh, over top the christening of a baby, right? Uh, it, it's, an, it's amazing. It's really well done. It's, uh, it's one of those movies that you can see it again and get more out of it. I mean, that movie's been studied so much that I don't know how much I can have to add to the discussion other than if you haven't seen it, watch it. If, you, if, if it was 30 years ago or 25 years ago that you saw it, revisit it and watch it again on the big screen. If, uh, if you haven't seen The Godfather, you just don't like movies. Probably not listening to this podcast. No, you're not, you're not listening to us. Yeah, uh, yeah. If you haven't seen The Godfather, everybody listening to us right now has seen The Godfather, so you guys know what we're talking about. And I'm not going to sit here and beat you over the head with this. We've gone on long enough, but The Godfather is, uh, especially the first two films. Now, I like the third film just fine, and for some reason, everybody uh, kicks the shit out of little Sofia Coppola for her uh, portrayal of the character in that film. I thought she was just fine. I don't, I don't have a problem with her in that fine. i could i could watch it again i i prefer the first two uh, over the third but the third's a fine movie the the, the there's a new that, there's a new coppola edit of the third one too it might be worth checking out it, it, yeah. it is worth checking out they call it uh i think they call it godfather coda and there's a bunch of material that was left out by the studio that coppola put back in and it's that's worth seeing it I'll really is Michael, his a couple of the things that he sells, his character sells in that movie, or the actor portraying himself through the character. Uh, to me, the you remember when the cop hit him when he walked outside to to the hospital and the police officer comes up and hits him over the head, the dirty cop, the one mm -hmm. that later on ends up shooting in the in the right. cafe. When he when that cop hits him, and Corleone doesn't do anything about it, then that's when you know you know. The, Dead. Yeah. Because he didn't say anything. He didn't. It was like that a switch was flipped and now things are different. Right. Now things are Yeah. Different. And that was clear from the performance. Yes. Yeah. Clear from the performance. Nothing was said. They didn't have to. He didn't have to go back home and tell everybody how he was going to get even with him. He didn't do any of that stuff. He, he sold it all with his performance after the hit. Yeah. But that's flawless. That really is flawless. Oh, yes. Yeah. Oh yes, it was uh, Sterling Holloway is that guy's name. It's the actor's name. Played the dirty cop. Dirty he cop. was in Doctor Strange Love too. Oh, yeah, he was. He sold it. Yeah, and uh, yeah, when 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 they kill him, shoot him right in the head. And, oh yeah. Uh, it's uh, you know, and then it's just so much sorrow in that movie. He has to go to. Has to go to Sicily and falls in love with a little girl, and she gets blown up. It's just, you know, that was a tragic, tragic shame. Uh, then he comes back, and there's a stain on his heart that just doesn't go away. You know, it, uh, he realizes that he's responsible, and there's nothing he can do about it. And the rest of his life, he's got to carry that around. And this is where he belongs. And this is the best yeah. he's going to do. Yeah, you know. yeah, that um, they, and some of the some of the things that they they showed and they didn't have to say. So the premise, the idea is, is that 
if you are an off-duty cop, you do not have to do anything to provide security. Just your presence there is going to keep everybody safe. You don't have to actually act actively do anything to provide any security. Just being there for the ride and sitting at the diner and having dinner and all of that just means that you're going to be safe. And then, and then Michael says, no, that's not the case. I'm going to show you different. That is you most know? definitely not the case. Yeah, that's not the case. Yeah. <laughs> oh, God. Yeah, that was such a, I mean, all the, all the locations and all of the shit they you know they didn't film any of that in vegas they didn't really? they yeah i read up on this a little bit they <laughs> didn't film any of it in vegas they filmed it all in the northeast where they were they just you know used some location shots for vegas but they didn't have the money to go out there and relocate the the whole crew to las vegas so they just made do with what they had there and uh you know the Mo Green character. You think there actually was such a person in Las Vegas that was responsible? Well, see, that's that what that's thing. what Coppola's done. So he's he's made you. He's convinced you that you know who Mo Green is. He's convinced you that you know who the Italian singer was. He's right. convinced you that you recognize all these papers, people from the newspaper, and they actually all, existed. He's convinced you that they actually were there. It has all these people exist, and all this stuff happened. And and that this is this was absolutely the way it played out. I've just I've just changed a few things so they can't tie it too hard. And it, it doesn't matter whether it's true or not because hmm. you're already thinking about all right, Mo Green, who to hmm, in Vegas. I know who that might be. He you know built built Las Vegas from the desert up. Yes. Yeah. And he tells you, You know who I am? I'm Mo Green. I'm over, and then he gets shot in the eye. <laughs> it's not going to work out too well for no. me. Uh, so yeah, so that uh, it, it's worth watching, and it's it's an, it's another one of those things. The more you look at it, the more you get out of it. You know, oh, yeah. uh, and I can I can watch that more often than I can uh, a lot of the other classics. That's for sure. Right. Yeah, it's entertaining every time you see it. You know, it really is. So our five at the top are the Tolkien trilogy, Lion and Winter, 2001, A Space Odyssey, Last Picture Show, and Godfather. And, hey, you know what? You guys are free to disagree. If you want Citizen Kane in there, be my guest. Watch it. Right? But uh, that's just our, that's our version of the top. 100 list and uh john you got anything you want to add to the discussion so far well i um i rewatched a movie a film noir movie the other day when you mentioned uh earlier uh, when we were talking you mentioned the film noir thing i watched a one that i it was filmed probably 12 years ago i'll send you a link for that uh to see if you want to check it out it's right. it's uh it's interesting i just want to keep you up on that uh, I saw it again, and then um, what's the name of it? It's called uh, "A Walk Among the Tombstones." A walk, walk among, among the tombstones. Yeah, right. and it, you're going to like it, even though you're not going to think you're going to like it. So the author's name, the author of the book, is uh, Lawrence Block. He's 82 years old. He's still alive, and his character called uh, Matthew Scudder. He created the character, and the character aged. 
along with Lawrence Block. So the character mm-hmm. ages throughout the novels. And this was the only, this has only been the only real capturing of that character on screen. And uh, it's really good. It's really the good. A Walk Among the Tombstones. I'll get that. Walk Among the Tombstones. It's dark and it's ugly and it gives you that sense of ugliness right. through the whole movie. Yeah. Right. Not as ugly as, you know, Bad Lieutenant, but it's. Oh, still God. Ugly. I couldn't even finish that. that it's was, worth watching. I tried to watch it. I got about 30 minutes into it. I just thought. Jesus, I don't want to watch this guy do anything else. I mean, it's like it's like three steps past Harvey Keitel guy, right? Oh Jeez. shit, that was no. I had to turn that off, John. Sorry, I just yeah, life's too short <laughs> <laughs> to feel life's that bad. Too short to put that in my head. You know, I'm not going to do it. So. <laughs> well, anyway, I appreciate your being with us today. I hope you guys enjoyed our little review of the, of the movies that we do from time to time and our version of this week is our great films great films podcast and uh, John thanks again appreciate you being here always a pleasure and we'll see you guys next week here on Starting Strength Radio